Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and compelling seafood news of the week. I'm Editor-in-Chief Drew Cherry, and I am joined today by Executive Editor John Fiorillo. And we are taping on the heels of some big coronavirus outbreak news, unfortunately. Um, over the weekend, American Seafoods, one of the world's largest factory trawl uh, companies, uh, and one of the world's largest Alaska pollock harvesters, reported a finding of COVID-19 on their vessel. Now, these vessels are 200 feet plus vessels that go out to sea for several months at a time with a crew of mm, 100-ish people. And one of the big fears has been heading out to sea on these vessels. What if somebody uh, does contract COVID? How is that going to be controlled uh, in such a small space uh, these cases could could easily spread. That was a fear, and it seemed maybe a month ago like it was just a fear. Uh, and then the unthinkable, at least for these companies, has happened. Um, John, you broke this story, so tell us a little bit about where we are uh, as of today with the uh, with the American Dynasty, which is the vessel that had the outbreak. Yeah, so uh, the vessel, uh, he left Seattle, a uh, vessel left Seattle May 13th to do some hake fishing. And it was in Bellingham uh, um, this past week, or better part of the past week. And on Thursday, one of the crew uh, felt ill. Uh, test came back Friday, positive for COVID. And the crew member was taken to the hospital, I guess, um, and not clear what their condition is right now. But uh, in light of that, the rest of the crew was tested and now 85 um, additional members of the crew have tested positive. So the boat has come back to its home port in Seattle, Pier 91, and is in lockdown. That's the current situation right now. The Pollock season, the bee season opens June 10th. So the likelihood of this vessel getting up there in time uh, is virtually nil, especially if they have to take a new crew on and quarantine them for, I don't know, two weeks like um, some of the others are are doing. So uh, not, not good. Not good at all, obviously. So back of the napkin, how much Pollock are we talking about for that single vessel? Like, you know, will this have any kind of supply impact at all? Well, it's hard to say. So I think the quota is 1.4 million metric tons of Pollock this year for Alaska. And uh, let's see, American controls 18.3% of that. So that's, if my math is right, that's like 260,000 metric tons divided by five vessels. They have six, but um, five are primary uh, Pollock vessels. So that's a lot, you know, I mean, that that's that's a lot of fish. I don't know if the others can pick up the slack or how that all works, uh, because this is, you know, this is not something that's uh, typical, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah, I mean, essentially that's fish in the water, one would think, if that's the, you know, if the quota is, is tied to uh, tied to American. Um, so l- let's, let's see how that plays out. But how did this 
how did this happen? Um, and what you, you've talked to some health uh, health consultancies on this, in particular that work with the Pollock companies. And our colleague Rachel here in Seattle also talked to them about the prep for the Pacific whiting season. But how did this happen? Yeah, I mean, I think it's too too soon to know like exactly how things happen. I mean. The, the hake season was the first concern, and that, that went off um, so far without a hitch. The, um, the, you know, they didn't have any outbreaks on any of the vessels, which are basically the same vessels in a lot of cases. So um, I, I really don't – I mean, I, I just don't know, and I hate to speculate, you know. I mean – one thing that was said, this was said by American Seafoods, that um, uh, the crew isolated um, for at least five days, uh, quarantined themselves before getting on the boat. So some a minimum of five and a maximum of we don't know. But most of the health officials uh, that are, you know, helping out in it with with fishing and vessels and plants, you know, a 14 day quarantine is minimum, um, you know, and that's the standard. So I don't know if that came into play. I, it's just, you know, it's not, it's not correct to speculate at this point, but the result is uh, got, you know, an entire industry on pins and needles right now. Yeah. Yeah, it sure does. And I think, I mean, yeah, no way to know yet how this all uh, all played out until they do contact tracing, and we may or may not uh, find out the story exactly on how that happened. But five days isn't enough. I think I think that can be said pretty clearly. Um, and if there was any doubt about that, this should sort of bring that home. Most people are saying 14 days before they uh, either head out to sea or, or head out to Alaska for those that are heading out to remote areas to process or to fish. And there's a reason for that. And it's uh, there's a lot we don't know about this disease, but we do know that uh, people can be asymptomatic for up to two weeks, um, and that means you can spread it. So this this, I hope, will serve as a cautionary tale for companies around the world that are harvesting um, one of the things that has been done differently by some companies and others is uh, a full a full full quarantine. If there are people asking employees to do their own home quarantine, that doesn't really work so much. Um, and the reason being that you have uh, families, you have kids, you have. Uh, every, I mean, we, we've all been trying to do our very best to observe every part of these quarantines, but it's almost impossible, almost impossible because, you know, you have deliveries, you have these casual contacts that you don't even think about, even when you think you're being very safe. And I think the biggest concerning thing to me or the big takeaway that, that I see is we're learning a lot about how virulent this disease is. and Yes, the Pollock vessels and factory trawlers, they are very, very close quarters, and you're touching a lot of things. You're in the same galley. You're, there, there's so many different ways it can spread, but at the same time, I find that pretty shocking that it went uh, across 85 members of the crew. So uh, an overwhelming majority of that entire crew is infected. That should terrify anybody 
running a vessel or anybody operating a processing plant. Um, John, you just talked to Discovery Health. Um, As I mentioned earlier, they've been consulting on the the Pollock vessels. Um, Now, what are are they recommending that companies do and fishing companies do? What's been their uh, advised protocol? And the pretty, you know, it's pretty standard stuff as you might expect. But one thing they did stress was the 14 day quarantine they, uh, prior to, to leaving, whether you're leaving for a plant or uh, aboard a vessel. So that I got the sense that that was really critical to um, at least doing everything you can to prevent this. And, and your point's a good one. I mean, I think it's Trident. I can't remember. I think we reported this, that they have a monitored quarantine, which means they put these crewmen and women in a hotel and they don't let them leave and they have guards and, you know, (laughs) they have it all worked out. So these people stay in their rooms. Well, the other quarantine is kind of what you just mentioned where it's, you know, you self-isolate, but you know, your wife or whomever goes to the store and comes back, basically that 14 days starts all over again. And obviously that's, you know, that's difficult. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's what I heard. Yeah. Well, I think this is, um, this will, I think, change the calculus for a lot of companies around the world that are putting their, uh, crews onto vessels for, uh, long periods of time. Um, you know, those nine days, uh, those additional nine days, that additional cost of putting people into hotels, locking it down, um, it may seem extreme, but think about what the cost is. So if Trident was successful uh, with its hotel lockdown in that two-week period that they had in hotels, um, that that is worth every penny if that's going to keep them from having a COVID outbreak on those vessels. Um, so it's a ounce of prevention, pound of cure, right? Is the, is the old aphorism. And, um, it's just, it's starting to seem like there are no shortcuts to this and, um, you know, actions that seem perhaps a little bit draconian, a little bit much, uh, a month ago now seem like those will have to be the standard. Yeah, and I, I've talked to a few CEOs this morning that are involved in in that fishery, and that's the message. The message is uh, you can't you can't do enough. You can't do enough right now. If you think it's overkill, it's probably not. But you have to do everything. Um, and look, I won't be clear. Uh, nobody's saying American didn't do it correctly. I have no knowledge of what what their system was or how it differed from some of the others or whatever that may be. But fact of the matter is they have a massive outbreak, uh, on this vessel. Now, one other thing to keep in mind, because this plays into Bristol Bay, um, with its, uh, in Dillingham with the small community up there and the fears that, you know, bringing all the workers in there will infect uh, the local community. It, Bellingham is about an hour and a half north of Seattle. It's a great little town, but it's a small town. I don't know for sure, Drew, you know better because you live there, but 
there's no way their hospitals could take 82 uh, COVID patients uh, at one time if they all actually became sick. So this is kind of a this is kind of what the fear is for small places up in Alaska, Bristol Bay, et cetera, where a massive outbreak of ill people, um, not just positive test uh, cases, but ill people, it, it can't be handled. No. And I think that's, you know, let's, let's hope that maybe companies up there, uh, up their procedures um, and up their precautions after seeing what's happening here, because this, you know, obviously worker health and safety should be paramount at the top of, of companies' minds, um, you know, and to, to, to operate a, a ongoing business, you have to have profitability as well. And um, they are not mutually exclusive, um, certainly. And in fact, that additional care may your your earnings and and what happens to your business may hinge on it. I don't know what this means for American Seafoods. Um, they are in the process of of uh, being sold, um, or at least they're being shopped on the market by their um, private equity parent. So let's see how this factors into valuation and how all of this looks. Um, but we won't know that for a long time to come, several months down the road. Um, speaking of uh, mergers and acquisitions, last week it was confirmed. I th- don't know if it's final, final, but I believe the ink is just about dry on the uh, the Cook Ocean Beauty deal that will be merging together their Icicle Seafoods and Ocean Beauty Seafoods uh, salmon operations, Alaska salmon operations. Um that will uh, not include um, a couple of their vessels. It will include some of their ground fish operations. And then there will be a separate uh, uh, a separate Ocean Beauty division that will continue to have the same ownership that Cook won't be involved in. So um, a lot like the deal as we've reported it um, ahead of time. Um, it was about a year ago that we first got wind of it, and it's been... Apparently, even prior to that, it's been in the works that discussions have been happening. Um, it's an interesting deal. It comes at a time when the industry up there is struggling. There's definitely going to need to be some rationalization. Um, and definitely uh, in comments that Mark Palmer, the new CEO of uh, Ocean Beauty, uh, well, OBI Seafoods, we should call it, which I think stands for Ocean Beauty Icicle. Um, but OBI Seafoods, uh, Mark Palmer gave some comments to uh, a national public radio, or Alaska public radio, rather, and said there's going to be a big investment program going into those plants um, that both Cook and Ocean Beauty are going to undertake, um, and that this is, uh, you know, a, a genuinely positive step forward. Um, now, John, you've written a lot about it. What what was your first first take on the on the deal with it closed and with um, the details out yeah I mean my first take is it's it's just part of this broader wave of consolidation in the uh, Alaska uh, wild salmon industry and too many plants uh, too few fish and a lot of companies teetering on financial distress if not deep in distress uh, so um, you know, it makes sense from that point of view. 
I guess, you know, you got the elephant in the room is now that one of the world's largest salmon farmers, I think we're, we're doing a ranking right now. I think they're like number six or seven in the world. Uh, Cook uh, produced like uh, 105,000 metric tons last year. Uh, so one of the largest salmon farmers in the world now owns a company that, according to my sources, produces between 15 to 20 percent of uh, the state's uh, annual salmon harvest in Alaska. So this is a big uh, this is a big salmon company right now, a very big salmon company. Um, and I, you know, I, I think you and I were talking, we're kind of wondering uh, how how the Alaskans, so to speak, will welcome um, a salmon farming company. The the state is, um, I guess, hostile is a pretty good word, hostile to uh, aquaculture in general, salmon farming specifically. So uh, this could get interesting, I guess. Well, fishermen are not known for their tact or not known for um, for being happy about anything. Uh, so I think this deal is already, uh, you know, already I think Cook and Icicle have, have taken their, their flack over being, um, you know, in the farm salmon industry. I don't know that that changes the, the loyalty of the fishermen necessarily because um, Icicle has, has operated, um, you know, and in, in under Cook's ownership. Um, I don't know how much of their fleet they have uh, lost, if any, over the past few years, but Silver Bay has grown quite a bit stronger, Silver Bay Seafoods, uh, and Trident Seafoods has been doing well. Trident has deep pockets. Um, but yeah, I think that fishermen, you know, in many ways, the Bristol Bay fishermen and the Southeast, fish- Southeast Alaska fishermen, their heads are stuck in the late 1980s. Um, you know, they, you still see bumper stickers all over Washington state as well that, you know, friends don't let friends eat farm fish or things like that. Um, so it's a denial or at least a a lack of awareness or just, uh, you know, an inability or, a, a no desire to sort of look at the broader market. Um, which is fine. That's not really what they do. They deliver fish to these companies who go out and, and market them. So that's one thing that as an Alaska salmon processing company, you have one thing, and that's your relationship with fishermen. You can have great equipment. You can have, uh, you can have all, the, all the money in the world to invest in plants unless you're able to attract and keep a fleet then you don't have raw material. There's no quota system in the Alaska salmon fishery, so companies have no access or, or rights to those salmon. Um, so really, the, the merger is, uh, is, the, is the easy part. Now comes sort of, quote-unquote, selling it to, um, to the fishermen themselves. And I think, I think the winner in all this, um, you know, I, I think Cook comes out on top here when you look at it. I think that Ocean Beauty has a, an interesting ownership. You know, 50% of it is a CDQ group uh, that's, that's based there in Alaska. 50% is owned by uh, private owners that seem to really have no interest in the business at all, as far as we can tell. Um, and, uh, and, and so it's, it's going to be interesting to see how this gets run. But based on what we know of Cook, 
you know, Cook is not a hands-off company, and I really do think they'll be driving the the bus on this. But the question really is, um, you know, where where do you take it? So now that you're driving the bus, where do you take it? It's a troubled sector. Do you buy some of these other assets that are for sale, like Peter Pan? Do you what What do you do? Um, so I don't know about that. I don't know how you get the elusive synergies or, or end up making this a uh, um, you know a more powerful company on the on the uh, on the salmon processing side. I don't know, John. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, you know, this is probably naive, but if you merge these two together and there's overcapacity. I would think you'd be shutting some plants down or maybe converting them into some other some other form or fashion. I, I honestly don't know, but um, it seems hard to believe you would just keep things running as usual when, you know, in certain places like Kodiak, they have several plants between them that, um, you know, I don't, I don't think they're at capacity by any means, but. Uh, you know, I'm not entirely sure, but yeah. Well, I mean, I think that it's um, if if anything, one thing that comes into play here, and and we don't have time to dive into it today, but is the pebble mine that's uh, being proposed there in Bristol Bay, and that that is a political hot button issue. Fishermen are against it. Processors are against it. Local native groups are against it, but. And yet it, it moves forward, and it's definitely something where the Alaska governor and the Trump administration really want to push uh, that uh, that mine uh, forward, which is going to be at the uh, sort of the headwaters of the, the river system there for the, uh, for the wild salmon. So, hey, who knows what happens behind closed doors and how all this shakes out and works out, but... Point being, there's an agreement reached, and uh, it's one more one more step in the in the global empire for for Cook, and you know it's impressive. They they definitely have appetite to grow. Uh, how all this integrates, how all this fits together, when you have wild salmon in uh, wild salmon in Alaska, and you have bass and bream in Spain, and you have salmon farming in uh, in eastern Canada and the UK. You have shrimp farming. Uh, I don't know how it all comes together, but somehow Cook makes it happen. Maybe, though, you know, that's that's going to be the magic uh, solution where you're so spread across so many that if shrimp, you know, has a terrible year, you can absorb it. I mean, there are companies already set up like that, whether Cook takes it to, you know, the nth degree and succeeds, I mean... Who knows? But that seems to be the plan. I mean, they they haven't come out and said that necessarily, but that seems to be the plan. Well, let's see where they go next. They're definitely definitely not going to stop. All right. Well, let's shift over to farm salmon since we're on the topic, and I'm going to bring John Evans, correspondent down in Brazil. John, you've been covering a lot of the farm salmon sector, both on the market side and the production side in Chile. Uh, let's talk a bit about what's going on with that market. Um, Chilean salmon suppliers who really are working um, to the capacity that they can do at the moment, given the you know the lockdown restrictions and the curfew restrictions they've 
had there, you know, producing and, and shipping as much as they can. They say they say they can't really ship much more. At the same time, they are beginning to see early signs of recovery in the, the US food sector, although it is very early days. And as we as you can see over there, the states and counties um, are, you know, emerging from the lockdown to, to varying degrees at varying rates, all with different restrictions. So it's not uniform and it won't be quick. That's what you can say about it. Um, it you know, all all along, as we've said, it, it, the retail uh, sector has dominated with with higher sales um, at, at higher sales, yeah, and and then the food service has fallen away. So they'll be hoping to get some of that back as uh, restaurants, um, you know, increase their delivery services and pickup services, and then of course this is going to be social distancing requirements, which will leave a lot of restaurants sort of at half capacity, most likely. So, um, as I say, it won't be quick. I mean, they 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 seem to be just from your from your story, um, the the executives you talked to, they seem to be relatively upbeat. So, are you getting the sense that that's uh, sort of whistling in the dark, or do you really feel like there's actual momentum for a kind of recovery here? Um, I don't think it's either, actually. I don't think it's whistling in the dark, and I don't think that, you know, it's, it's a full-on, uh, you know, this full steam ahead momentum for a recovery. I think they're just happy that, that, to see a little bit of business coming back for the moment and hoping, that, you know, that it will gather momentum. I think that's that's how you could uh, you could phrase it, really. Yeah. So looking at, um, at Coho, uh, now that competes directly with Bristol Bay uh, Red Salmon on the Japanese market. Um, coho is not a, a massively produced uh, farm fish in Chile, but uh, there has been some move towards farming a bit more of it in recent years. Um, so w- w- what, what can you tell us a- about that market? Um, you've done a couple of interviews and talked to a couple of people about it, and you're in the midst of working on the story. But what can you tell us just at this early stage? Yeah, I don't give too much away because obviously I want people to read the story, but it is has been quite been through quite an interesting turbulent volatile period over the last two years the Japanese coho market uh, with prices up and down and inventories up and down um, so yes I'm, I'm, I'm looking to find out a little bit more about what's behind it but um, you know there is a, there is a, um, there is a sentiment that that uh, you know, Sokai from from the United States doesn't play the bigger uh, you know the big role that it once did with the Japanese having taken um, you know gained an appetite for, uh, for for coho, particularly from Chile. Yeah, John, you're based in Brazil, and you just interviewed a, a, one of the major CEOs uh, in uh, at one of the Brazilian seafood companies. Obviously, Brazil is a huge market for Chilean uh, Atlantic salmon. What's sort of your read on the Brazilian market for salmon? Um, obviously, in the middle of, of some really rough spikes of uh, coronavirus there. Any sort of uh, take on what might happen with the salmon market there? It's, it's, it's a similar situation to the United States. And, and Brazil, it's difficult to say whether Brazil is behind, lagging behind the United States uh, in terms of reaching the peak, because Brazil certainly hasn't reached the peak and it's just gone past 500,000 cases. I think it's up to about 30,000 deaths today. Um, that it was, it was certainly bordering on that. And 
that means that, that you know that the food service um, establishments, the restaurants, bars, cafes, uh, shopping malls are likely to remain closed for quite some time. Although they are starting to ease restrictions in Sao Paulo and, and other places, and people are saying that it's too early um, because we haven't reached the peak yet, and that the you know the hospitals are very close to full in the intensive care uh, units. So uh, the, the food service sector like everywhere else took a big hit and um the chilean exports to uh brazil you know rely slightly heavier on on food service than they did on retail so that you know it's really going to take some time to come back i think we're talking i don't know months rather than uh, weeks before we start to see anything really in the food service uh, area. So from from your view and your knowledge of Brazilian consumers, how quickly do you think they will return back to normal habits? I know that's just a, a, a wild guess, but is there any feeling that there'll be sort of a quick embrace of, of, uh, of food service and restaurants when things open back up? Well, I suspect, like everywhere else in the world, you know, they may restaurants may run at fifty percent capacity. Um, but as we have never been through like something like this, or we have a hundred years ago with Spanish flu, it's really difficult to predict. Um, you know how people will behave. I mean, they haven't been obeying lockdown as as much as they um, should have done. We needed seventy percent here to, to to make the you know to make the thing more effective and and work. Uh, more quicker, but now that the fact that it's been 50 percent, forty nine percent, and now they're opening up slightly, uh, well, we'll have to see whether a people come back to restaurants and b whether we get a second spike, which you know, as, as looking at Britain, people are concerned about that, and they you know, and they're not likely in the end to get as many uh, cases as Brazil is. Yeah, well, that's uh, another topic for another podcast to look at what's happening in the UK as well, because we've done some uh, some good reporting on that too. All right, thanks, John. And with that, we will wrap it up for this week's podcast. Remember that you can find us on intrafish.com, where we are reporting around the clock from all our bureaus uh, here on the West Coast of the United States. We're also in Asia, in the UK, uh, reporting out of Norway, on the East Coast. So we are everywhere, tracking all the news, and it is coming hard and fast right now. Also, at the end of this month, uh, don't forget we have another digital event that is free. We will be talking to some of the top executives in the whitefish sector, so already joining us will be the Bird's Eye Igloo UK MD, Steve Chaluma. We also have Aspersen CEO, Klaus Nielsen. So it's really going to be a great event. We've got other speakers on the way. Uh, that's it for today, folks. We'll speak to you next week. Bye-bye.